streamlined design that sets it apart from the lookalike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking right now on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin. Welcome to Business Disrupted. Every two years, half of America hunkers down for nonstop political ads forecasting doom. If the other candidate is elected, while the other half of America crawls into their bomb shelters with their iPads and keep calm and trust Nate Silver blankets. But beyond what we see as consumers of politics and political media, political campaigns are a big and complex business. Our guest has been through them and is here to talk about it. I'm pleased to welcome back to the show our friend, former U.S. Senator and host of the Al Franken podcast, Al Franken. Al, thanks for joining us again. Uh, thanks for having me, Ted. You know, you, you do this three more times. We're going to have to get Paul Simon and uh, Buck Henry here to welcome you into the Five Timers Club. Oh, that's right. Uh, the SNL five-timer host club. That's right. That's right. Okay. Has Paul done it five times? I know I, that. I do believe he did. Oh, okay. All right. Um, so when did you decide you wanted to lay the groundwork for running for office? Um, I think I first started thinking about it in, uh, in uh, March of 2003. Uh, my friend Paul Wellstone uh, as you know, uh, died in a plane crash in October of 2002. He had been our senator. And um, so he died less than two weeks before the, uh, the election. Right. And uh, he, the guy he was running against was Norm Coleman. Uh, what happened was he... he uh, Walter Mondale stepped in the uh, the memorial for Paul. I don't know if you've seen it, but if you watch this memorial, it's one of the most gut wrenching and passionate and amazing um, memorials. Just and it was like almost the only time during that whole campaign that real human emotion <laughs> was anywhere. Yeah. yeah, and it got used against. Uh, Democrats, that actually nationwide. Right. And I think that it changed who the majority was. And one of the, Walter Mondale became our standard bearer with like 10 days left. Right. And Coleman won. And basically, in large part on this, look what Rush Limbaugh was saying. And uh, I wrote, I wrote about this in my book, Lies and Lying Liars Who Tell Them. I was writing that book at the time. And then, uh, so Coleman wins. And then in March of that year, there's a roll call article. It's a Capitol Hill newspaper. And in it, he says, to be blunt, I'm a 99% improvement over Paul Wellstone. And I read that and I said, I wonder who's going uh, who's gonna to beat this guy. So you were doing, uh, you were doing your show for Air America Radio, the Al Franken Show. Uh, first I, I was not. I was not quite doing it yet. We th that. That's right. That was that started in two thousand four. Yes, that started in two thousand four. So that was. I was. I had sort of signed on to do it. Yeah, uh, do it at that point. I was kind of aware that I was going to do it, but at that time I was actually 
to starting the work on the book with number of students. I was at the Kennedy School, right, and I had a study uh, a study group. I was a fellow at the Shorenstein Center at Harvard, and um, they invited me up there for the spring, uh, winter, spring uh, semester. And I said, oh, what am I going to teach? And they said, well, you don't have to teach anything. I said, oh. I said, but you can have a study group. And I said, well, what can I, what can I teach? Well, you can teach anything you want. I said, could, could I teach students how to research a satirical book? And they said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of professors do that. So I think, so I think that was, it's not that uncommon <laughs> right. that uh, professors do that kind of thing, maybe more in grad school than undergrad. So, uh, but I had a number of undergraduates and anyway, so, uh, yeah, I was, uh, finished that semester, uh, finished the book, went on the book tour, uh, and then started the show. And, and you, so you formed team Franken when you were at Harvard, that was the name that was the name that your study group took on. Yeah. And, and, uh, at least a few members of team Franken, unless I'm mistaken, followed you to the show. Um, Andy Barr was one Ben Wickler, who now is chair yeah. of the Wisconsin state democratic party is another. Yes. Um, so it, it became an incubator for people who would go on to do some pretty impressive things in, in politics. Absolutely. Well, Ben followed me to the show and Andy was still in college. He was a yeah. sophomore when he, in the college, when he worked on the book. So he, he had to, my wife, uh, convinced him to stay in college. <laughs> <laughs> Good, good, good job. <laughs> and then when he graduated, he joined the show and yeah. then he became like my first campaign manager well, uh, um, for the campaign. So there and, you go. And we're, that's, we're going to talk about that. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're doing the show in New York city in 2004 at the end of 2005, you moved the show and yourself to Minnesota. Right. Uh, and well, at the, at start, yeah, not quite at the end, but yeah, yeah. In 2005. And, and, and then you start your, your political action committee, Midwest values pack. Right. And, and, and at that point, is that the precursor to a candidacy starting a pack is pretty, you know, it's pretty, pretty much. Yeah, I did position. it with the intention of, uh, if, if I had, if I decided to run, uh, if I decided to run and, and was going to do well, that I would start raising money for uh, the political action committee, which basically I raised money to give money to Democrats in the 2006 cycle, uh, which, as you remember, um, basically Bush, uh, you know, was reelected in 2004. And in 2002, the cycle did not go well for Democrats. But 2006 was, was a way for Democrats. Right. And so a lot of people I helped were elected for the first time. And uh, you're obviously not the first person to, to start a PAC as a precursor to a run for statewide office. Why is, why is the PAC such, a, uh, such an important step in establishing oneself as a candidate for office? Well, it's really an opportunity to you know, show that you can raise money. Right. which if you run for office is something that people are going to end up being important in terms of uh, backing a candidate or at least establishing your legitimacy. Right. Uh, that's one metric. Can you raise money? So I could turned out, 
And two, it meant that I could give checks to people running for the Senate, running for the House, running for the state legislature. Uh, so both with the intention of um, supporting people around the country who I was hoping would get into the Senate uh, and people around in our state who would both also, Amy Klobuchar ran that cycle uh, for the first time and also members of Congress, Tim Walls won that race. I, I really got mm-hmm. behind Tim big time. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that was, that was the idea. And then I actually went around the state doing some fundraising for the PAC, but also a lot of fundraising for the DFL party and kind of because of both the radio show and the, uh, the book, the popularity of both. And also people in Minnesota knew me. I had, campaign a lot for Paul. I had been a bit of a fixture in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, and w- because of the book and because of other, my other presence in media, people knew uh, where I stood politically, I, that I was a progressive Democrat and had strong opinions and wasn't afraid to express them. Right. And so, and it was funny. I was funny too. And that helped because uh, if I did a bean feed uh, and I showed up, people would show up and we get a bigger audience. And if I didn't show up, if, so, but, you know, very often they change the venue to a theater or something like that. So I was getting uh, people to turn out and give to the local DFL party, the, you know, the uh, Senate district or the uh, county party. And that means a lot. And right. so I was demonstrating at the same time that I was popular in Minnesota with Democrats and that I was uh, kind of a viable candidate for uh, for the DFL nomination. And and for our listeners, DFL is the Minnesota Democrat Farmer Labor Party. Yes, there, yes. The, the Democratic Party is a is a consortium of three very, very distinct groups that all seem to have found each other in, in, in the 19th or 20th century. And, Hubert and Humphrey the really put case. them together. It's the Democratic Farmer Labor Party. So it was the Democratic Party and the Farmer Labor Party. Yep. And farmer laborers had a lot in common earlier <laughs> in that century and had formed a party and the Democratic Party. Uh, Humphrey got them together. So he was he was the force behind that. And it was an important move. It was very important for for the party. So on. Valentine's Day 2007, you ended the Al Franken show on Air America, uh, announcing that you were running for the United States Senate seat previously occupied by by your friend, the late Senator Paul Wellstone. Right, right. And if there are three people who really are the, the North Stars of Democratic politics in Minnesota, it's Paul Wellstone, Vice President Mondale, and Hubert Humphrey. That's it, yeah. These, these are not small shoes to fill. Um, I mean, I've, I've been to political events where people announce that they're running for office and it's like a yard site for, for Paul Wellstone there, which as my father explained is like digging them up and burying them again. It's a very excruciating process, but his memory is entwined in everything having to do with democratic politics in Minnesota, at least for the last 20 years. And this was his seat. This was six years after he had died election the election was going to be i started running almost two years before yeah 
but everyone knew this was a seat and everyone knew that there was just a tremendous passion about getting the seat back again. And you'll remember that we were, the war in Iraq was still an enormous issue. Paul had voted against, you know, going to the war. I think he was one of the only, he wasn't the only, I think I've said before that he was the only uh, incumbent Democrat who voted against going, but I think Dick Durbin did as well. And I'm, so I may have done a disservice to Dick that way, but he was one of the few anyway. Yeah. And he, he felt when he took that vote, he told a number of people close to him that he thought he'd lose. And what was interesting about Paul um, was that <clears throat> uh, people around the state knew that he, um, he'd vote the way he believed. And they liked that. Yeah. They, they liked it. They um, felt like, well, you know, he has the courage of his convictions. I know where he stands, and I respect that. And when he voted against going to war in Iraq, most Minnesotans were for going to war. His, his poll rating went up. Hmm. Well, there you go. Yeah. There's, there's something to be said for convictions. Yep. So you, you threw your head into the ring. You had, a, I think, a three-person primary. And and in Minnesota, yeah. the primary. well, there were there were in people coming in and out, but um, it depends who you count. But Jack Nelson, Paul Meyer, and Mike Cerisi were probably the uh, Jim Cohn ran to uh, Bob Olson, but um, I'd say that Mike Cerisi, who had um, you know was a very 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 successful trial lawyer who had won some very significant He was victories. one of the trialers behind the tobacco lawsuit. Yes, exactly. And uh, he had done some great things as a lawyer. And Jack Nelson Palmeyer, who was um, a, a brilliant professor at uh, St. Thomas, at the, this college, uh, a Catholic college, and a great guy. Um, that was really the basic three-way uh, three-way race. Yeah. So when your campaign started, you mentioned that Andy Barr was the campaign manager for, for a while. What <laughs> yeah. did the campaign team look like when they young. When started? <laughs> they looked like young people. Yeah. Uh, the first three, oh, I had tr- sort of a triumvirate, but, but Andy just got started. And Andy got it started by, and uh, really during the 06 cycle, going around and getting to know who the young activists were. Mm-hmm. And so David Benson was one of them and Jess McIntosh was another. And they were, uh, Jess uh, ended up being my press secretary uh, in, in my Senate office. Right. And uh, David's gone on. He was, he's from South Dakota and has been a big, big guy in the South Dakota Democratic Party. And Andy came and, and uh, to the, uh, to Washington and, as a speechwriter, both for me, but he, he also for uh, Chris Dodd and other people. Mm-hmm. And so you start with this kind of triumviral team. When does the, when does the operation expand? When, you know, at some point a political campaign grows so large that the candidate isn't ever going to know everybody on the campaign who's working. When does that, how, do, how is that lifespan happen for you uh, as you come out of the gate? Well, you know, it's gradual. So we, 
you know, you get a campaign office and then you get the part of the campaign office that's me <laughs> and, and the, the campaign managers and the press people. And there's, it kind of goes out like this, but I basically for a long time knew everybody worked on the campaign um, to the guy who, you know, came in and volunteered to, to wash, you know, clean the bathrooms mm-hmm. every day. And he, you know, I mean, it was, uh, everybody was in it. It was, was in the winning this thing. And it took, it took quite a while before I didn't know people. And, um, but at a certain point, that's the case because you're in the heat of a campaign. Certainly you're, you're, you're having people all over the state who are, uh, volunteering and, and, or they're paid to work for you. And, uh, you don't, you don't know everybody. Right. We're talking with former U.S. Senator Al Franken about the ins and outs of political campaigns. If you have questions, tweet them to us at B-I-Z Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. And if you're joining the show on Facebook Live, put your questions in the comments. So the biggest priorities for a a young campaign are fundraising and awareness raising. Right. People already knew you pretty well. Right. Um, And and, and that's going to play in on both of those issues. Did the fact that people knew you, that you were widely circulated in print, that you had an extensive history of writing, that, that you had been in the public eye politically for, for several years, was that a help or an obstacle to be overcome? Oh, it, it was interesting what was a help and what wasn't. Uh, one of the things you do is you get a pollster. And the pollster is basically measuring what people think of you and what seems to be your strength and what are your weaknesses. And so it turned out <laughs> that uh, people were not impressed with having, you know, written for Saturday night live and won Emmys. And even, you know, even though they knew me from that and loved that, that was no, that didn't help. <laughs> that didn't help much at all. Uh, what did help was I had written books. And that uh, it was at first I, I I went to Harvard and I thought that would be a negative. You know, I thought, I don't know. I just thought, okay, that sounds elitist. I just don't want to say I went to Harvard. So, (laughs) so my, uh, my pollster go, you know, does the, the, you know, the focus groups and, oh, he must be smart. Okay. (laughs) Okay. There's that. So it's funny because Diane Feinstein, like the first time I spoke at a caucus lunch, about two weeks after I got into the Senate, I got up and spoke and I got a standing ovation from the rest of the Democratic senators. And when I got down to when I got to my table where she, we were sitting next to each other, she, she said, you know, when you first got here, I thought you were going to be stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, why? She said, because you were a comedian. And I said, well, actually, comedians are, are really smart. Oh, I don't think so. Most of what they say is really stupid. Okay. So then I went, okay, never mind. And then, uh, but that, I, I think people in Minnesota kind of felt that way a little bit about comedy. If they didn't pay, especially if they pay as much attention to comedy as Diane had. So, right. Uh, so it was the books, Harvard, 
Um, and that was that was kind of the that was kind of it. Now, among the FLers, they knew I had campaigned and they knew I was a progressive. They knew that the books I had written were about politics and that I had taken, you know, and that I'd been a talking head every once in a while as well. And of course, that I had campaigned in Minnesota a lot and spoken in Minnesota a lot on, on different issues. So, uh, yeah, I had a lot of name recognition and it was all pretty good. There was, you know, at first. And then uh, the Coleman campaign uh, used a lot of jokes that I had done very much out of context and very much, um, you know, is a kind of thing that you can't, resp- it's not worth responding to what the context of something was. And um, it's funny because I expected that we had my pollster, we had to go to uh, Washington, to the cap, you know, to the Senate. And uh, my pollster did a part of her presentation was, can Al survive these jokes? And, <laughs> and um, she, uh, so one of them was, if you knew that Al Franken had told a joke about the Holocaust, uh, would you be, and then, uh, so, at the end of this whole thing, her answer to that was, I can't remember exactly what the answer was to the whole thing about jokes, was Harry just goes, what was the joke you told about the Holocaust? I said, well, it was, I, I think a bad Hanukkah gift for Anne Frank would have been a drum set. <laughs> and it's, you know, it was a joke in a certain context. I, I'm Jewish. I, I um, Jews tend to joke more, I'd say, about stuff like that. It's dark humor. Yes. Um, and so, it, you know, and, and there's stuff like that and uh, edgy stuff that, but we overcame that. I overcame that. And, and part of that process you've written um, in, in other books was your staff putting you through what you call the dehumorizer. Yes. <laughs> I had a tendency. I had a couple bad tendencies for a politician because I hadn't been one, you know, and part of it was I tended to answer questions. The press asked me just head on. And there's a thing called pivoting, <laughs> uh, which, <laughs> uh, which is you get asked a question and that you don't really doesn't do you a lot of good to answer that question in a fulsome way. And so I would, the, the idea of pivoting is to just give some, uh, you know, some attention to it, but use it to pivot to something else. Basically turn the question into the question you would like to answer rather than there's that there's yes. And, um, and I was terrible at that. I just didn't cause I was taught like if someone asks you a question, answer the question. That was, I was taught by my parents. So it took me quite a while. <laughs> I remember once. Okay, so I'm in uh, New Ulm. You know where New Ulm is, right? I do. South Central Minnesota, and it's New Ulm. It's a German, settled by Germans. And so I'm at the, in this beautiful park in New Ulm, and there's a huge statue uh, to Herman the German. 
like his name was Artemis or something, who had defeated the Romans in some battle. So he was a big hero. So I'm, I'm speaking there, and I think to myself, I'm from St. Louis Park, which is the Jewish suburb of Minneapolis. Uh, the Cohn brothers are from there, et cetera. Norm Ornstein. Um, so, and it was called St. Jewish Park. It was like 20% Jewish, but that's a lot of Jews in Minnesota. So I said, I, I got in my head like it'd be, I'm with uh, Herman the German, I, that I grew up in St. Louis Park and we had Stu the Jew. <laughs> and I decided not to do that. Okay, so because there was a tracker there. Yeah. Uh, someone, so then I go back and I tell my team, you know, I thought of selling this joke, Sue the Jew, and I didn't. And they're going, way to go. <laughs> way to go, Al. That's, you know. So then, like about, I don't know, a month later, the reporter from New York Magazine comes to cover the story. And he says, uh, you know, like, is it hard not to tell jokes? And I go, yeah, yeah, it is. I said, do you have any examples? And I tell him, <laughs> I tell him, Stu the Jew. And so it shows up in the article. And they go, why did you do that? And I went, I don't know. <laughs> you, you just couldn't help yourself. Um, I was stupid. And then what happened right then, I just, I got it. I got it. Pivot, pivot, pivot. Don't answer the question. So I did an interview with a reporter from the Star Tribune. And I'd gotten a, Jess had given me a real good pivoting training session. So I, I sit down with this reporter and I start pivoting. And now I'm going like, oh, I got it. And I start just having fun with it and pivoting egregiously because, <laughs> you know, I still couldn't help my guys. So at the end of this interview, the reporter says to, to Jess, you know what? I think he's got a real shot. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's yeah. good. Uh, okay. I guess, I guess you can't over pivot. It's impossible. That's right. That's <laughs> to right. over pivot. It's, you know, it's the, the antidote is I think Warren Beatty's film Bulwark where he, he just answers every question completely, honestly, all unrestrained id and, 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 and see where the chips fall. Yeah. It's a nice fantasy. We're talking with Al Franken, former U.S. Senator for the state of Minnesota and host of the Al Franken podcast. If you have questions, tweet them to us at B-I-Z Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. And now seems like a good time to mention that uh, Senator Franken will be going out on the only former U.S. Senator currently on tour tour starting September 18th in Northampton, Massachusetts and coming to a city near you. You can find the schedule on tickets at alfranken.com. We're going to take a short break to hear some messages from our sponsors. Stick around and we'll be right back. Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at Voice AM Business. Again, that's at Voice AM Business. And stay current. Gavin Solmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring, and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, 
We have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, it's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at GavinSolmanese.com or call us at 302-655-8997. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you have questions, tweet them to us at B-I-Z Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. If you're joining the show on Facebook Live, put your questions in the comments or just say hello. We're talking political campaigns with former U.S. Senator Al Franken. We were talking a little bit about the the, the degree to which your your awareness in, in the public helped your campaign and affected your campaign. There's also fundraising. How much of a typical candidate's time is devoted to fundraising? Well, of course, more than it should be. Um, it's, you call people, first of all, there's, there's calling people on the phone. It's called call time. And what's interesting is I said, well, I got to do this anyway, right? So, <laughs> I mean, you know, so sometimes it's three hours. You have three hours of call time. You're calling right. people asking for money. I remember the first guy I call, uh, John Pharisee, He's a lawyer from St. Paul. So I go like, okay, uh, hi, John, the pack. Uh, yeah, uh, well, how much? How much you can ask him? Well, you can give up to $5,000. He goes, okay. I go, really? <laughs> <laughs> that was my first, my first call. <laughs> really? Yeah. He, I, he reminds me of that all the time. And it is pretty funny. Uh, but then I just, I just became like, I enjoyed doing call time with, but what was important to me was who I was doing call time with. Mm -hmm. So I made sure that I was doing it with somebody who made me laugh or, who, or at least who would laugh at my stuff. And uh, I developed things like call time, the musical. <laughs> I, I, I can't wait to hear what this is. I'd be like, I left a message. Oh, yes, I did. Ah, ah. I left a message. I do not get. No, I left a message on the phone. 
I left a message. He was not home, 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 <laughs> home, home. And that's and, a good way to take up some time also. Yeah, which is not good. <laughs> and that doesn't do you any good. No. But it was a good way to, like, have fun. And, and we'd do a short, shortened version. I left a message. That'd be like... Yeah, the shorter person. There's a there, there's a moment. I think it was uh, David Simon's HBO series The Wire when a, a a candidate for for mayor in Baltimore is is basically told by his campaign manager, "Go in that room and don't come back out until you have fifty thousand dollars or yeah. some number." I mean, how were you managed as a candidate with respect to financial goal setting? Was it "I'll go in the room and don't come out until you have this number," nah. or is it nah. your you're calling people for two hours. Yeah, it was that. Uh, here's here's a list, and I was bad too because I would I like to talk to people, right? So I would if I got someone on the phone, a supporter, or you know anyone, or a new supporter, someone I hadn't talked to before, and I like like them. They were interesting, and they wanted to know what I was about. And how, I'd talk to them on the phone a lot longer than you're supposed to, really. Right. But that created some loyalty. You know, and, and and there's a certain discipline as a writer that you developed that I imagine serves you well in call time because all the work is happening when you're sitting there in the chair doing the thing. Well, uh, I mean, you you the the discipline as a writer is you figure out what's effective and what isn't, right, and you edit. So, yeah. <laughs> so having been, you know, having been in show business and having been someone who entertains and communicates with people, you, you have a way of processing what's working, what isn't, and remembering it, and then also trying to craft what you're saying in a way. And again, I was just trying to do it so, so that it kept me interested as well. Yeah. Minnesota has a, uh, some would call it convoluted, um, I call it Byzantine yet interesting primary process. There are caucuses, there's a nominating convention in the spring, there's a primary in late summer, early fall, uh, <laughs> about eight weeks out from the general election. At some point in that process, did you effectively stop running for the place on the ticket and start running against Norm Coleman, the incumbent? Yeah, I mean, I once I got the uh, the at the convention got the endorsement of the party that's when i stopped i mean there was no i was the nominee and um so that was when it became a general election and um so yeah that that was i didn't have to i mean there there what you're describing is not uncommon and so there are people who will win the endorsement of the party but not uh, win the primary. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, your campaign against Norm Coleman was noted for its advertising. Um, and there were both positive and negative sides of that. Um, your opponent's ads were almost entirely negive. Yeah. And, and, and so, so much so that, that by yeah. the end of October, um, those negative ads actually drove up his unfavorable ratings to the point where you actually had a pretty solid lead. Um, I did a and, decent lead. Yeah. I mean, I pulled ahead and then he did this thing where he said, I went to Yom Kippur services and have decided 
that, uh, you know, it's not worth keeping this seat to be negative. And then he stopped, but the Democrat or the Republican senatorial campaign committee started doing the negative ads. Right. So, you know, that's, that's what outside money does. So you have, um, you know, that's what it was. Yeah. You know, very often if you see campaigns, uh, the outside pack groups will do the very negative ads and you'll do the positive ads for, for yourself. And, but he had been doing negative ads too. So, and it was pretty ugly. I mean, it was, and I remember my mother-in-law crying, like watching, it was one on the uh, joke that I'd done. And it was, I had done written something about early on in the life of the internet. This is an article for, for something. Uh, I, I said that, my message in the piece was watch what your kids are doing on the internet. So what the piece was my, uh, you know, my fourth grader just uh, on the, the internet's a great tool. He just used it to do a a fourth grade report on bestiality and he'll downloaded a lot of great visual aids. The kids in the class just love them. Now that's satire. That, that the message of that is don't let your fourth grader, yeah. <laughs> you know, go around the internet. And uh, so that was sort of Al Franken told the joke about bestiality. And then it went <laughs> it's like through the lens. Yeah. And my mother-in-law was watching it and going like, oh, oh. <laughs> and, and I went, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and that's, that's, that's the campaign my opponent's running. Right. And, and, and in contrast, um, your campaign was, was noted for creativity of its ads, but also, um, the impact that your wife Franny had on the campaign. Well, she probably saved my butt, uh, in a number of ways, but she did an ad, uh, which is she's in recovery. She's a recovering alcoholic and, um, I don't know if anyone had ever done this before, but she just said about, I had written a couple movies about codependency. About, I, did, I wrote a movie called When a Man Loves a Woman with Meg Ryan and Andy Garcia, which is kind of, which is a drama really. And I wrote it with Ron Bass, who won the Oscar for Rain Man. And, um, very proud of that movie. And I wrote a movie called Stuart Saves His Family, which didn't do as well. Uh, and, it was from a book I wrote about my character, Stuart Smalley. And it was sort of a dramedy as well. But both of them were being taught in rehabs, um, especially in the family programs, but mm-hmm. also in rehab, uh, also for uh, the, the substance abuser. And I was very proud of that. And she was very proud of that. And she was, um, did an ad that was very, very powerful. And I remember the next debate, uh, was in a gymnasium and big gym. And, um, when Franny walked in, she got a standing ovation. That's nice. Yeah. It was really nice. Yeah. That's nice. Well, the campaign takes you to election day, mm-hmm. uh, famously too close to call. Yeah. Well, that's, that's right. I remember so, that. <laughs> so after, after raising, almost what $20 million for the campaign. You then had to raise almost the same amount for a recount. 
Yeah, I can't remember exactly the figures, but it might have been more for the campaign. And, you know, basically for, it was all legal fees after that, basically right. in a recount. That and, and feeding volunteers. I'm sorry? Legal fees and feeding volunteers. Well, yeah, there was uh, other stuff too. Fundraising was, yeah. uh, I mean, you have to pay people to help you with that. Yep. And, but, um, yeah, it was a slog. And you'll remember that I was the 60th vote. Yes. So the Republicans were doing everything they could to, to delay this because I could have been seated in January. I could have been seated with the rest of my class. Right. And, but they did everything. I had won the recount already. And, but they went to court and that dragged on from, January through, uh, let's see, through July, through the beginning yep. of July. June 30th, I think, is when. Uh, yeah, yeah. I remember at 4th of July weekend, I, you know, went to up to the range and was in a few parades and after, but I had won by then and then yeah. uh, went to Washington to get sworn in. So after the campaign was done, you, your investiture happened, you're, you're in your seat. Once you're elected, how much does a candidate, how much money does a candidate have to raise? And how often are you fundraising while you're in office? Well, you know, thankfully it's a six year term. Right. So it's nothing like, like house members. I mean, obviously statewide races are a lot more money, but you tend to be able to get raise more when you're in cycle. Um, so you still do it. You still do it. And you still, but I had done a lot of it <laughs> between uh, the election and when I was seated. Right. So I had, uh, I, I just didn't feel I could go back to people again. And uh, so we threw a, a nice party uh, when I was sworn in for, for people that supported me. And uh, I, we gave it a rest. We gave it a rest. We might've hit, the mail a little bit. Uh, and you know, it was an impactful, uh, thing that I got seated because it was the 60th vote. Right. And ultimately we got the ACA done because of it. Um, it took a while because Max Baucus, who was chairman of the finance committee wanted to get a thought he could get a bipartisan deal. So he had this gang of six, three Republicans, three Democrats, the Republicans were, um, uh, let's see, uh, Snow of Maine, uh, Grassley of Iowa, and Enzi of uh, Wyoming. And this went on for weeks. And um, uh, Bacchus would come to lunch and go like, well, this is the progress we made this week. And then the next week he'd say, well, we kind of went backward a little bit. And then that would go on and on. But he keeps saying, but I think we can get a bipartisan deal. And if, finally, after two and a half months of that, he just kind of came in one day at lunch and just said, I'm convinced now that they just don't never wanted a bipartisan deal. And Arlen Specter, who had come over from the Republican side uh, to caucus with us, he was the 59th vote. <laughs> so after he said, uh, yeah, they just they I'm convinced they don't. They never were going to do a, a bipartisan deal. And Arlen said, well, I could have told you that. <laughs> and I said, well, then why didn't you? 
<laughs> so there are so many things that are wrong with that. And I, I, I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah. When you were last on the show, it was five days after the insurgency at the Capitol on January 6th. And I didn't mm. ask you about that then. And I am not going to make the same mistake now. Oh, okay. The, the Senate has become largely non-functional just because of its own procedural framework and how that can be manipulated now. Yeah. Um, what, what do we need to do to restore function in that body? Well, there's this tension there, which is that there, um, of course there's the filibuster, right? And, uh, Mitch McConnell, used the filibuster against executive nominees during uh, the Obama administration more than it had been used in the entire previous history of the country. His, he told his caucus right after Obama got elected that our goal is to make him a one-term right. uh, president. And so he tried to stop everything that he could. And he did. He succeeded that. And especially after uh, they got the uh, their 41st vote in Scott Brown, after Scott Brown won in Massachusetts to replace the uh, Kennedy seat. And um, so the filibuster really is an issue. Now, Joe Manchin, of course, and uh, Kristen Sinema, keep saying they don't want to get rid of the filibuster and they want the Senate to work in a bipartisan way. And that would be great. But the question is, will it? And, uh, you know, McConnell also said not, not long ago that he was going to spend a hundred percent of his time fighting, uh, Biden's agenda. So, without actually articulating what the agenda was, he was just going to fight it. That's right. Well, he kind of, you know, this was post the, uh, the, the, the speech to the joint session, right? So he had sort of laid out his agenda. So in fairness to Mitch, he knew, <laughs> he knew basically what he was, uh, the agenda he was not going to allow to happen. And so, for example, on the January 6th commission, you bring up the six, that we need a bipartisan commission to see why, how it was that the National Guard didn't show up until three hours in, um, how they were, why they were so unprepared. And then, of course, there are questions about what was Trump's role in this? Of course, why didn't Trump do anything from the time he first saw it happening until the Guard arrived? Um, there's just a lot of questions. And this should, it should be a bipartisan group and it passed in the house with a lot of quite a few Republican votes. Mm -hmm. And uh, Joe Manchin, a friend of mine, uh, thought he had the votes. He had reached out to his uh, Republican colleagues and thought he had it. And then Mitch McConnell uh, told them that as a favor, he wanted them to vote against it. And, uh, Coming from him, a favor is code. Right. And you've seen that code in a number of Scorsese films, I think. <laughs> and 
Um, that's Brian Williams' joke. <laughs> I, really? I said it was code, and he went, like right away jumped on that and said, yeah, code, you've seen a lot of Scorsese films. Nice. So I went, wow, okay, great, good. You, you <laughs> gave, me, gave me the joke that I can use with Ted. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but um, so, you know, we're going to be seeing this on, on voting rights. Uh, you know, the For the People Act is going to come up for a vote, and it's, uh, it's going to go down. And, and I think, and McConnell has made it pretty clear, and uh, Roy Blunt, who uh, Manchin cited as one of his good friends, uh, immediately said no. Um, and so I have the feeling that at a certain point that uh, Joe is not, he's not going to get rid of the filibuster. He has said this. But there is a way to modify the filibuster that would actually restore the filibuster to its original intention, the way it was used. And this is something that Norm Ornstein and I have been, um, been working on for about almost 12 years now from the first, first I got there, and which is right now it takes one person to filibuster a bill. She just goes, I object, and you got a filibuster. And then it takes 60 votes to break the filibuster. Right. Well, our plan is that it would take 41 to sustain a filibuster. So that 41, in this case, Republicans, but the minority and doesn't have to be a party thing, like in, during civil rights, that wasn't party. But the 41 who want to sustain the filibuster have to come to the floor and be there and, and then and then keep the floor in debate. So that and that shifts the burden from the majority to the minority that is objecting. If, if exactly. they want to prevent a vote, they have to control the floor, which I feel like when I was in grade school and middle school, this is what I learned a filibuster was. You, you had to read. It had to be germane and you had to control the floor. Well, you had to stay there. You couldn't, couldn't, by controlling the floor, you just had, you had to have one guy there. Right. But uh, in our plan, you'd have the 41 there. Um, So there are 50 of them. That means nine Republicans don't have to be here at any one time. It's 24 hours in a day. Uh, Nine fiftieths. I figure that's about five hours a day, four or five hours a day. Right, they can, they can take shifts and have yeah. no take. Now nap. Chuck Grassley might go. I'm 87 years old. I don't want to do that. And so they might, you know, give a youngster like Tom Cotton. You got you. You know, Mitch might say, "Okay, well, you got to take a couple extra hours because <laughs> I don't want to do it either." Anyway, so <laughs> that's that's how our thing would work. And what it does is when I say like. You know, I said Mitch McConnell filibustered more executive nominations than had been filibustered in the entire previous history of the country. That wouldn't happen. They're not going to show up to, you know, uh, filibuster a, a judge to to a district court. They're not going to. They're not going to do it to filibuster. Uh, to a circuit court. They're just right. not going to do that. It means that 
filibusters would be rare. Yeah. If they had to show up and stay there, that it just wouldn't happen much. And so, you know, you saw during, seg- you know, the segregationists take to the floor, Strom Thurmond famously doing 24-hour stint. Um, it actually be restoring the filibuster to what its intention, I, I think, had been. And, and you mentioned in, in that description that there needed to be germane debate. Yes. So they, they, they have to be, they have to, they have to no use green it. eggs and ham. Right. So they have to debate the issue. And yeah. Which I think Americans through. would like to see. There's not really uh, hardly any serious debate on the Senate floor. And I think Americans would like to see that. And I'd like to see them on the voting rights. I'd like to see them. Uh, this isn't the worst part of these voting rights laws that have been passed in these Republican states, but uh, I'd like to see them defend. You can't give someone water in a vote in, in line to who's voting. Right. You know, the, the, I've heard people go like, well, uh, it's, it's illegal to uh, electioneer in a line and giving someone water would uh, would give you an excuse to get in there to electioneer. I go, yeah, yeah, but it's electioneering that's against the law. You can walk by them anyway. Right. <laughs> and, and all, you know, it isn't like, you know, it's, a, it's, it's illegal to kneecap somebody. If you give them water, then you could kneecap them. <laughs> well, well, no, it's, <laughs> if you give them water, you give them water. If you electioneer, you're electioneering. Then some of the guy next to him or he can go like, hey, this guy's electioneering. Oh, yeah, sir. Sorry. We're going to have to take you, book you for electioneering. Al, I could well, that's that why I, well, I was giving him water. No, you weren't. <laughs> well, Al, I could put that on this topic for hours. Unfortunately, we are all out of time. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you'll come back. Al Franken is the former United States Senator for the state of Minnesota, which he served in the U.S. Senate for eight years. He hosts the Al Franken podcast and is on tour starting this September. You can find the Al Franken podcast, information about the only former U.S. Senator currently on tour tour, and more at alfranken.com. We'll include links on this show's episode notes at our website. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Cellino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. Our theme song and other original music are by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. PR and social media by Carol Lunger, Emily Stern, and ABNC Creative. You can find episodes, episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World Talk Radio Network. When do we start the uh, real interview? Thank you for tuning in to Business Disrupted. Be sure to join Ted Gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.